Thanks for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. Our hope is that it helps you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Guys, uh, it's good to be back with you. I was in Japan last week, if you weren't here. Um, Bob Witte came, and I listened to the podcast. You guys like Bob? Uh, he went for an hour on like the shortest book of the Bible, so the guy can teach. Um, so he is awesome. I met Bob. I think I heard him share this when I was in high school, and he claimed that uh, he's the reason I went to Bible college and stuff. I don't know that that's 100% true, but uh, he was a big influence for sure, and I uh, enjoyed my time in college learning from Bob and getting to know him and his family, and i um, grateful that he came and taught Obadiah, and he's going to be teaching Malachi, the very last class of the semester. Oh, man, we are doing two books today, Jonah and Nahum. Do what? I know. Well, Bob can go for an hour on the shortest book, and I have to have two books to fill 40 minutes, so um, we're going to give it our best shot. But Jonah and Nahum, uh, the reason I cho- chose to do two books is, number one, the time you know, the length of this class for the fall, we only had, uh, I think it was 11 weeks long. There's 12 minor prophets. We also did an introductory week that Elijah did the very first week. So uh, towards the end of the course schedule, there will be two more books that are combined. But I chose Jonah and Nahum because they both deal with the city of Nineveh and the nation of Assyria. Um, So the first blank for you on your paper, by the way, is Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. So today is going to be a little bit different. Um, We are still going to watch the Bible uh, Project videos on Jonah and Nahum because they're important to understand how to read those books. But both of these books of these two minor prophets deal with the nation of Assyria and more specifically its capital, Nineveh. Now in this uh, semester of the minor prophets, you have undoubtedly noticed a theme of the neighbors of Israel and Judah being evil in the sight of the Lord and Israel being like these uh, pagan neighbors and God being displeased because they've broken the covenant relationship. Um, uh, Today, though, I want to focus in on how God deals with uh, these neighboring nations, how God deals with his enemy and the enemy of his people. And the books of Jonah and Nahum give us Such a unique look into how God handles uh, these neighboring nations. Now, I think that these two books, Jonah and Nahum, at the, at the, oh, the surface level seem to be saying two very different things about how God deals with his enemies. However, I think when you take both of these books in context, you'll see the consistent character of God that we have seen throughout all of the minor prophets thus far. And I don't want to reveal the answer, number one, because you already know the answer, I think. But number two, because it doesn't make for good teaching. We've got to wait till the very end of the class. So Jonah and Nahum are the two books that we're doing today. They're not in canonical order in your Bible uh, because Micah is sandwiched in between these two. So we're going Jonah, skipping over Micah, then Nahum, if you're following along uh, in your Bible. But I want to give you um, some context of this city of Nineveh. Now, this is an artist rendering, obviously, of Nineveh. This city is thousands of years old, so photography, at least to my knowledge, did not exist uh, in this point in history. Could be wrong about that. But uh, this is just an artist rendering of what the city might have looked like. 
I want to read a little bit from commentaries and books of history that I've been studying over the past um, few months on the city of Nineveh to give you a picture of just what this city was like. I already told you the first blank in case you missed it and you need it again. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. You've already heard of the nation of Assyria in this class. The two nations that God's people have to deal with the most, it seems, in the Minor Prophets are Assyria and Babylon. Now, Nineveh became the capital of the mighty empire of Assyria and was renowned as that great city. That's a quote from Jonah chapter 1, verse 2, that great city. The context of this evocative epithet is that Assyria was known for its terrorist atrocities in warfare. So that great city, when God is speaking on behalf or in reference to Nineveh, is not that great city is like, wow, that's such like a great city, like you would say, he's such a great guy or she's such a great girl. It is it is more so the grandeur of its size, but also that great city. Think great in the terms of terrifying. Sometimes we use the word terrible or terrifying to give this image or this picture of great in grandeur. And this was the, 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 the meaning behind God's statement of that great city because of how great and terrible it was in its atrocities in warfare. It was the most cruel and ruthless nation of the ancient world. And that's saying something because the ancient world is known for its atrocities their intended victims, not only did they destroy and burn the cities they conquered, they also subjected the inhabitants to various kinds of suffering and humiliation. This was common between a lot of pagan nations of the day. Assyrian soldiers, though, were completely ruthless. They would flay people alive, strip the skin off them, and drag them off with hooks in their flesh. In the British Museum, there are stone carvings taken from Nineveh which show how the Assyrians dealt with conquered cities. One shows a great heap of heads. The picture of the siege of Lachish shows three men impaled on wooden stakes outside of the city, a grisly visual aid to those who were still shut up inside. Captives were often mutilated by cutting off hands, feet, noses, ears, or tongues. A depiction from Kordesbad shows Assyrian chariots driving over mutilated bodies. Infants were often dashed in pieces. Women might be taken as spoil, and pregnant women were usually disemboweled. Having conquered a city, the Assyrians would take steps to see that this city did not have any more, did not cause any more trouble in Assyria's future. Doesn't Nineveh seem like such a peaceful place to live? Seems so great, huh? Don't want to step out of line. Yeah, don't want to step out of line in, in the nation of Assyria. So this is the context of the city that we're talking about in the books of Jonah and Nahum. I want you to keep as hard as some of those images are to keep in your mind, some of those words that I just read about the context of this nation of Nineveh, have it at least kind of in the back of your mind as we're going through the books of Jonah and Nahum to understand the historical context of what's going on in the times of these two men as they were prophesying. Now, less on the topic of their atrocities in warfare and terrorism. I want to read a little bit more about the city itself, this picture that you can kind of see up on the screen. There is a pronounced play on this image of greatness in the book of Jonah. The emphasis in the early scenes are on its physical size and renown within the known world. This was a big, big city. 
Nineveh is a fabulous city, a den of iniquity for three days walk across is how Jonah, how it's described in the book of Jonah. It took Jonah three days to walk through the city. At the height of its prosperity, Nineveh was enclosed by a seven and a half mile inner wall around the city. Seven and a half mile in a circle around the city of a brick wall. According to a survey done in 1834, more than 175,000 persons could have lived within its walls. The population of Nineveh in the story of Jonah was given to us 120,000 people. That's a lot of people in an ancient city. Nineveh was situated as now what is northern Iraq, uh, just across the Tigris River from the city of uh, Mosul. So you'll see Mosul in modern day northern Iraq. Um, the, I should have got a picture that has the river, but it would have been right around there um, where Nineveh was located. To give you context, Joppa, which is a city mentioned in the story of Jonah, was right here with the Mediterranean Sea. Those, those uh, places will come into play as we start studying the book of Jonah. Nineveh, though, was destroyed by a coalition, meaning over different hundreds of years and centuries of warfare, by the Babylonians, Medes, and Scythians. The devastation of the city was overwhelming and complete within several centuries the very location of the city was actually forgotten. Uh, there were Greek armies that retreated past the site in 401 BC without even realizing that a great city once stood there. In 2nd century AD, uh, another Greek um, named Lucian commented, Nineveh is so completely destroyed that it is no longer possible to say where it stood. Not a single trace of it even remains. Now, to this day, this was in the late 80s, archaeologists have done uh, studies and digs around this area. There were known, a known 15 gates to the Great Wall, that seven and a half mile wall that surrounded the city, and they have actually found five of those gates and remnants of the wall and other buildings there around Nineveh uh, now. But they had to dig down something, um, I, I want to say it was something like 60 feet um, from the top of the, the topsoil down is where they eventually found uh, this wall and other parts of the city, which is pretty crazy. I'm no archaeologist, but that seems pretty deep to me. Um, so that's the context of the city of Nineveh. I needed to give that to you before we started studying the books of Jonah and Nahum so you knew the context of what we are dealing with. This was a massive city. It was terrible in its atrocities against its neighboring nations and sometimes against its own people, but it was a center of economical, political, religious influence across the known world at the time. The first thing, or the thing that we need to remember though about Nineveh is it is the capital of Assyria and Assyria was an enemy nation of God's people, Israel. This was a people that the Israelites did not like. Siri's doing some research for us on, uh, on Nineveh. Um, it was a people that uh, the Israelites did not like. It was a nation that was a threat to Israel. Now, this is the context for the books of Jonah and Nahum. We're going to study both of them. Uh, I have another blank for you before we get into the Bible Project videos on these two books. Jonah was written approximately 150 years before Nahum. Jonah came before Nahum 
in this. And that's important for us to remember as we jump into uh, this study of these. You guys ready? Feeling good? The book of Jonah coming up first. Um, pretty wild book. It's one of the more well-known minor prophets. One of the things that's unique about the book of Jonah as opposed to the other minor prophets is that the book is not really about the prophet's message, but is about the prophet itself. This book focuses so much on the person and character of Jonah. We had a little bit of a taste of that in Hosea, when Hosea chapter 1 through 3 and Hosea's marriage to Gomer, uh, it wasn't really dealing with Hosea's character per se, but more so it was about Hosea as a person and his relationship with Gomer, and that became a picture of God in Israel, God taking his wife, uh, his, his covenantal wife back after her unfaithfulness. But this book, the book of Jonah, um, the sermon to God's enemies, like he said in Hebrew, is five words long. The, mo- the, the majority of this book is focused on the person of Jonah. Now, Jonah is one of the people that you hear about in kids' church. So at your tables, I want you to uh, talk about this question amongst yourselves for just a moment. <laughs> Um, what, what have you learned about Jonah? What were you taught about Jonah before you walked into the room this, today? What did you know, think, believe to be true about the man that they call Jonah? Discuss him at your tables and go. All right. Um, I'm going to start with the table that I think is the youngest table in the room. This is you guys back there. You guys, I think, are the youngest table in the room. I'm just guessing. And I'm, I'm picking on you because you were uh, most recently in kids' ministry, probably, based on your age. Now, I'm not going to be dumb enough to pick the oldest table in the room. I'm not that stupid. But uh, I am willing to bet you guys are the youngest table in the room. So I would love to hear from you guys. Uh, what were some of your beliefs, what you had been taught? Um, what did you believe to be true about Jonah and his story? Anybody want to share first? Remember, I'm not afraid to pick on people. Yeah. I, this is a sad part of my existence as a child. I never watched VeggieTales, so I didn't grow up with that. But I know that there's like a tomato and a pickle or something, right? Uh, Oh, cucumber? Yeah. Pickles, a cucumber has been baptized, so. um, That's fine. That's pretty cool. I thank you for sharing. Yeah. Well, I, piggybacking off of that, uh, I, had a, I never watched VeggieTales, but I did have a Bible Heroes poster in my room when I was a kid, and uh, it had guys like Abraham on it, David, Daniel, I think Ruth might have been on it, um, but Jonah was also on it, and when I, so I thought he was a Bible hero back in the day, and then when I went to college and studied Jonah for the first time, I was like, I don't know that he's actually that much of a hero, you know? He kind of kept doing the wrong thing. Most, I mean, in chapter twos, there's that kind of that moment of repentance when he's inside of the whale, but I would repent if I was inside of a fish too, um, you know, even if I was being stubborn. So I, I just came to that conclusion when I was in college that I'm not all that convinced that Jonah is a hero uh, of the Bible. You know, I think that God is using Jonah as begrudgingly as Jonah wants to be or doesn't want to be used. He's going to use Jonah to teach Jonah and Israel and us a lesson about the character of God, that God also loves not just his own people, Israel, but also his enemies. And it's frustrating in the story of Jonah that we don't see more about Jonah's transformation. I mean, the book ends, shouldn't I care about all of these people within the walls of Nineveh, you know? And Jonah doesn't even answer. It's just like, 
man, do, does Jonah care? But the point of the book is, is more so that God cares about, about his, his enemies, which is, which is unsettling sometimes, you think about it. But yeah, this is the book of Jonah. Jonah's book reminds us of this. This is a blank. God cares for all people. God cares for all people, even the enemies of his own people. And remember, Nineveh, Assyria, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, was a great enemy against Israel. Remember the uh, historical setting that I provided for you? It was a massive city, 120. Would somebody in the back mind shutting those doors? Um, I think the Ninevite children are out there. Um, So um, it was a massive city. It had a lot of uh, influence on the region there, but also it was a dangerous neighboring nation because they killed, murdered, mutilated people, Israelite people as well. Jonah hated this city of Nineveh because he hated the Ninevites who lived in the city, but God loved those people. This is a quote from D.A. Carson, who's a Bible commentator on the book of Jonah. He writes this, the book of Jonah is a story about a prophet who bitterly resented the fact that God, care, that God loves and cares for evil people. The book does not teach that God loves evil people because they are evil, but rather because they are human, of intrinsic worth to him in spite of their behavior and their disregard for the true God. This is what the book of Jonah is all about. I want to walk through the book of Jonah uh, with you in some key verses, starting off with Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh. Remember, we quoted Jonah 1 earlier. The great city is how God refers to the city of Nineveh. And preach against it. This is in reference to preaching repentance, a message of repentance towards them because they are in sin. Because its wickedness has come up before me. So God is sending one of his prophets. This is interesting. Most of the time when God sends a prophet, he sends a prophet to his people, Israel or Judah. In this book, God is specifically sending a prophet to an pagan nation, the nation of Assyria, to preach to these people in an act of trying to get, wow, trying to get these people to repent of their sin and turn to the Lord. But Jonah doesn't want to do it. Jonah chapter one, verses three. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. This is the picture of what we have of Jonah. Um, Jonah does not want to do this. Why does Jonah not want to do this? Because he's an enemy of the Ninevites. And what do the Ninevites do to their enemies? They kill them. They mutilate them. They grab them by hooks and drag them through the cities. Jonah hates these people. And he doesn't want to go be their next victim. So he flees from the Lord. So I mentioned earlier, I wish I would have brought a map that had Joppa on it, but Joppa is somewhere right here on the Mediterranean coast, and he got on a boat to sail this way, the opposite way of Nineveh. He was going towards Tarshish, which is this way off of the map. He was going in the complete opposite direction of Nineveh. He did not want to go 
there. You know the story, big storm came. He was the one who had caused the storm because of his disobedience. The sailors, regrettingly, they tossed him over. They begin to worship God and he is swallowed up by a big fish. This fish story is for some people very controversial in scripture as a whole. Not necessarily did this not did this fish have any bearing on just the book of Jonah as a whole, but does this fish have bearing on the Christian faith? You'll have some instances in Scripture where people are like, well, that couldn't have actually happened, so maybe the Christian faith isn't real. A donkey talking, a fish swallowing a human, and the human living in a fish for three days. Next question to discuss at your table. Did the fish thing actually happen? Could it have actually happened? You'll discuss, and then we'll talk as a class. Go. All right, we're going to start at the other back table over here. What do you guys think? Did the fish thing really happen? Why, why not? This is a weird thing to think about, right? Because they don't ask you to think about this in children's ministry. They just tell you that a fish, that Jonah basically had a full kitchen and TV inside that whale when you watch the Veggie Tales. You know what I'm saying? I don't know. I've never watched the pickle or the, the cucumber. Uh, but it's one of those things where it's like, whether you say he was in the fish or he wasn't in the fish, it's one of those things where you have to pause and be like, this is weird, you know? Like, you can't be in the room and say like, no, that's not weird. You have to at least say, this is kind of an odd thing that happened. I want to introduce you to a guy named uh, Michael. Uh, this is in 2020. Michael is a uh, crab fisherman, uh, maybe a lobster fisherman. That's definitely a lobster, right? Yeah, that's definitely a lobster. I'm pretty sure the article I was, I was reading about him said he was a crab fisherman, though. Maybe this is all a lie. Anyways, um, so he lives uh, near Cape Cod, and he was going crabbing or lobstering or whatever uh, the verb you would use there is. And uh, he was down there with his partner, and he was about uh, 40 feet deep. And a humpback whale came and captured him, well, was feeding, and he got stuck in the humpback whale's mouth. Uh, according to the article and this guy's testimony and his partner's testimony, who was on the boat above, uh, he was in there for about 40 seconds and he was um, really scared. But then the, the whale noticed something was wrong and basically shook him out of his mouth and he floated back up to the surface. Um, you know, he was saying that uh, he was terrified. He was surprised that like his lungs didn't explode, things like that, because he was so far deep and he rose so quickly uh, to the surface. But this is a, within the past two years, somebody has a testimony of not necessarily living in a whale, but surviving in a whale for 40 seconds. And I know this is a really weird case to bring because we're talking 40 seconds as opposed to three days, right? Um, but I wanted to bring this up just for a point of conversation that within recent history, at least somebody is claiming with the testimony of his partner, and then they went to the hospital and the doctors checked him out. Uh, and, and they said the story is probably true that this man spent 40 seconds uh, in the mouth, not the belly, but the mouth of, of a whale. So it has kind of happened. Um, now, what Cody is saying is, Cody is, would not, his earlier statements would not be refuting this story because Cody said 24 hours. This was uh, less than 24 minutes. It was 40 seconds. So the question again is, did this fish thing really happen? So you have two camps uh, in, in Bible scholarship when it comes to, 
to not just this question, but also how people read the Bible in general. You have more of the conservative camp. Uh, the Bible says it, so I believe it. You have the more uh, liberal camp. Uh, well, the Bible doesn't always you know, mean what it says on face value. I want to reiterate something that she said earlier. Whether or not the fish thing actually happened, the story of Jonah, the message of Jonah stays the same. God loves his enemy. He loves um, his people as well. And he wants everyone to repent and come to him. But we cannot ignore that this fish is in the story. It actually plays a very pivotal part in the story. Without this fish, according to the scripture, now it could be currents or, or, or other things that got him to uh, Nineveh, Jonah wouldn't be there. So we can't just ignore the fish. Now I want to bring the map back for a second. We know that when Jonah was thrown overboard, he was somewhere right here in the Mediterranean Sea headed for Tarshish. The Bible says he spent three days in the, the belly of the fish. So he was swallowed. Three days he was spit up on dry ground somewhere over here. Now what this map fails to present to you are all of the rivers. Another thing we have to think about is what kind of fish was this? You know, it wasn't a smallmouth bass, that's for sure. Uh, mostly because there's not smallmouth bass there, bass there, uh, but also because they're, you know, like two pounds as an average or something. Um, but what kind of fish was it? Obviously, people suggest that there was a whale um, or a big fish of that nature. Um, there are references, some people in Bible scholarship say that it was this thing called the lekos, L-E-K-O-S in Greek. And uh, it was basically like this uh, sea serpent sort of thing, which is, um, which is, you know, in my mind, it's kind of a, uh, a way out there. It's coming from left field sort of thing. There's no fossil records of anything sort of that. It may have been Nessie um, from Loch Ness, you know what I'm saying? Uh, we don't really know. All the Bible says, at least in the NIV translation, was provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of a fish three days and three nights. That's all the biblical context that we have. We have no other historical or archaeological context for this very moment. So did the fish thing actually happen? Now, like I said earlier, I don't know that it changes the story all that much, but I would caution li the, the liberal approach to um, Scripture, liberal theology, which says, well, we can't always trust what the Bible says at surface. You mentioned, or I mentioned earlier, I'm going to fall more into the conservative camp. Um, I, I wouldn't be as dogmatic as to say, what the Bible says that I believe it, because I know that Bible has metaphor in it. There's, there, there are figurative things in Scripture. Um, but this right here seems to be, be literal. And that's hard for me to believe because I think what Cody thinks a lot of the time, like this can't happen, right? Or what Daniel thinks, maybe it was a current. So it messes with my mind. Maybe it doesn't mess with your mind, but I, can, I just be, or can I just be transparent for a second? This passage of scripture, this one verse in Jonah 1.17, where it says the huge fish swallowed Jonah and Jonah was in that fish for three days and three nights messes with my mind because I want to believe what the Bible says is true. And I do believe what the Bible says is true, but it's really hard for me to believe that. Yeah, I, I, would, I would say when it comes to the reading of this scripture, why I believe that a fish 
did swallow Jonah is because Jesus said so. And that's not a Sunday school answer. Jesus literally said so. When he was referencing the story of Jonah, uh, he, he made it seem like Jonah was literally swallowed by a fish and spent three days, three nights in the belly of this fish. So do I think Jonah was swallowed by a fish? I do. But it really messes with my mind. I don't like that I believe it so easily, but I also believe that Jesus was dead for three days and rose again. I also believe all of the miracles in the Bible, and this right here is nothing short of a miracle. It has to be miraculous because we know from biology that people can't survive in fish unless they have, like the cartoons predict, a whole kitchen and living room and all of that. Then it's possible, but I don't think that that was the case. So the whole reason I'm bringing this up is just to mess with us a little bit, make us not so comfortable as the cartoon versions make us with the story of Jonah. So here's the recap of what I've destroyed about your beloved Jonah so far. He was not a good man. And this fish thing is really hard to believe unless we want to just be, uh, you know, whimsical about it. I do believe that it is true um, because I trust the words of Jesus mostly. Um, but even if you don't believe that Jonah was actually swallowed by a fish. I don't know that it has too much effect on the book of Jonah. I would caution you though in that liberal theology, well, we have to be very skeptical of the Bible because I don't think we have to be all that skeptical of the Bible. We need to read the Bible for what it really is, not adding or taking away meaning or context from the scripture. No, 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 you're, you're making a good point. Um, the, basically the point that you're making that I should have made earlier is the book of Jonah was not written for Oscar and Drake, remember? It was written for this original audience and they would have had understood biology different than us. They would have understood the sea different than us. So what you're saying I think is entirely appropriate to remember when we're reading this scripture. They would have, the Lakos, the, the sea serpent thing, people would have believed in that um, as a real thing. That was not myth or lore to them. They would have believed in it. I hear what you're saying on that. And the only, the only rebuttal would be um, in Scripture, while we take it very seriously, I do without a shadow of a doubt have never disbelieved that God provided a way for Jonah to get to Nineveh. Was it a fish or was that metaphor for something else? We know in the book of Revelation um, that a lot of the things that are in the book of Revelation, the dragon, um, other creatures that are mentioned there are used in metaphor to depict a, a, a different reality. Um, so they're in there to be used for metaphor to describe something that is really happening. I have no doubt, I, like I said earlier, just so anybody doesn't go tell Mark, I think Mark would wrestle with me on this the same way I'm wrestling. Uh, I think that, that Jonah was swallowed by a fish. I really do. As hard as it is for me to announce that, it's one of those things where you like tell people you're a Christian and that you believe in the, the seen and the unseen and that you believe that a man was dead and then he came back from the life. Uh, most of the world would think you're crazy. Um, so as a 28-year-old, uh, have multiple college degrees, that sort of thing, where it's, man, I have to stand up in front of a room of people and say, I actually do think that a man was swallowed by a fish, you know, and live there for, for 72 hours and uh, then was spit up back on a, on a different place on the map. Uh, I don't even know if fish could travel that far. But the reason that I do believe it is that, that, and this is really the sole reason I believe that this is not metaphor, but it is literal, is that Jesus referenced it as a literal event literally happening. Um, 
And that's the only reason I'm not saying it's metaphor, um, because I'm not, the, 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 the biblical authors are not opposed to metaphor. And that's one of the hardest things about reading scripture is we don't know, uh, not every time, a lot of times we can know, but there are some instances in scripture where it's hard to tell, is this literal? Is this metaphor? Um, because you have to remember all the genres that are in scripture from poetry to history um, to all that. And I think that another fact that lends this book or th this, this particular instance in this book of the fish being literal is that this is a book of history as well. It is recording a historical event that actually happened about a man named Jonah and the events that happened to him leading to this historical place that we know is true, Nineveh. So does that make sense, Roberta? Okay, we got to get to Nahum, but we're not even done with Jonah. I'm pulling a Bob Witte on you guys right now. I'm going for an hour. Okay, so Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. Let's skip forward. Jonah's spit out by the fish. Um, he, he lands on the banks. He, he goes into Nineveh, and he preaches to the Ninevite king there, and he tells them to repent, or Nineveh will be overturned. And Jonah chapter 3, verse 10 says, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. He was going to bring destruction upon Nineveh. I said this several times in the past few weeks, but God's judgment is intended to lead us to repentance. His judgment is not for his satisfaction. His impending judgment is, is there for the express purpose that we would repent. And this is exactly what happens in Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. The Ninevites are confronted with the message of God's judgment by a man named Jonah, who probably didn't want to be there. His sermon was very short. And they took the message to heart and they repented. They fasted. They put on sackcloth and ashes. And when God saw what they did, he relented from his judgment and did not bring on the destruction that he had threatened to them. Jonah, the so-called hero of the Bible, according to my childhood poster, was not happy about this. A prophet's supposed to be happy when people turn away from evil and turn toward God, but Jonah wasn't. In fact, he was angry. He goes up near the river, he sits on a hill to overlook the city, and he's sulking because these people, these evil people that he hated, repented, and now he's mad about it. This is what happens in Jonah chapter 4, verse 10. Jonah is approached by God, and he, this is after the tree has come up to shade him, by the way, and then the worm eats the tree away. God asks him this, but the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? God is basically asking Jonah, should I not care about these people whom I created? And the expression there, who cannot tell their right hand from their left, I think in the Hebrew, it's more of an expression to say, who, cannot, who do not know right from wrong. I think that's what the Hebrew expression is trying to say. Not who don't know the right hand from their left like they're dumb, but simply they don't know right from wrong. Remember, these are the people who have not been called to a covenant relationship with God. The Assyrians have not been called to this. They don't have the law like the Israelites have. They don't have the standards of God like the Israelites have. So message, Jonah's message is a call to repentance to come and follow the way of the Lord, and they do it. 
and God is pleased with it, but Jonah is not. That's the message of Jonah. And we don't even, don't even hear at the end of the book if Jonah actually even cares about the Ninevites. I tend to think that he doesn't, but I could be wrong about that, just like I'm wrong about this whole fish thing. Uh-oh, Oscar. It's easy for me to judge Jonah because I haven't had to go to my enemy who hooks people with fish hooks and drag them through cities, right? So yeah, I, I, I would agree with you. Like, I, don't, I, I shouldn't act like I would be any you know, more excited than Jonah was. Uh, that, that these evil people were turning to God, you know. But God was, you know, God was excited, but we can't, Jonah was a man, you know. A prophet is a man um, who has feelings. I don't know. We don't know anything beyond that he was the son of Amittai. He was uh, from the northern part of Israel, but uh, maybe he had family or, or friends who had been abused or persecuted by Syria. We don't know any of that, but maybe it's true. So the main, sto- the main point of Jonah uh, is that God cares for all people, even the enemies of his own people. All right, we're going to have to make a game time decision here. Dang. Well, all right, we're doing Nahum next week, guys, because uh, we have approximately one and a half minutes before this class is supposed to be out. We have a Bible video project to watch and uh, several chapters of Scripture to go through. Uh, Let me say a prayer and uh, keep Jonah on your mind. Hey, but here's the thing that we can do because these books are entangled with one another. Um, You can read the book of Nahum this week with Nineveh on your mind. Um, I'm going to give a little bit of a recap next week on Nineveh now that we are uh, skipping, uh, or not skipping, but pushing back Nahum. But I need you to, or I really want you to read Nahum because the message of Nahum seems to be, at least at the surface, juxtaposed to the message of Jonah. Um, so uh, we're not going to talk about the fish next week, okay? Took up all our time, uh, but it is a cool thing to, to get to discuss. And, uh, and next week is Nahum. It's three chapters, but it is, it's going to be good. Um, hey, before you go, I want to give you the one blank for Nahum on Nahum's message, um, because this will, this will be a little bit of a teaser. Remember that Jonah's message, at least the blanks that I have for Jonah's message, was God cares for all people, even the enemies of his own people. Nahum's message about the city of Nineveh is this. God will not leave guilty people unpunished. Did you get it right? Did you guess the blank? That's what I'm talking about. God will not leave guilty people unpunished. All right, that's the hint. I will see you guys next week. Thanks so much for discussion. Best discussion we've ever had. We're going to talk about animals every week from here on out. Dang it. Hold on. Got to pray. (laughs) Father, thank you so much for uh, this group of people. Very grateful for the engaging discussion and the honesty when it comes to uh, things that we were taught about the book of Jonah, things that we believe currently about the book of Jonah. Uh, God, thank you for even Oscar bringing up the let's not judge Jonah too hard because we'd probably be in the same position. I I can't empathize with Jonah in not wanting to love uh, my enemies. And my enemies have done far less to me than Jonah's enemies to him. Father, in it all, uh, would you keep it on our minds that you love all people, even the people whom we have a really hard time uh, loving? So, Father, if there are people uh, in our lives that we would consider uh, enemies or adversaries or maybe just people we don't like, would you bring it to our attention this week uh, that you love that person or those people? And Father, would you move us toward 
love for that person or those people uh, so that we may be like Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Thanks, guys. Thanks again for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. We hope that this teaching is helping you discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. If you're interested in learning more about Christ Church, visit us online at cco.church.